Excellent. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 22. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above, sorry, in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest, as do you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honour your father and mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not covet covet your neighbour's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbour's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. These are the commandments of the Lord, the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them... Just a tick. We are. <laughs> then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to start off with a bit of a um, couple of multiple choice questions for you. So, what do we commemorate on Anzac Day? Is it A, the landing of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps at Gallipoli in World War II, one World One? B, the arrival of the first free settlers from Great Britain? Can't speak. C, the landing of the first fleet at Sydney Cove. Any takers? Yes, A, well done. Okay, one more. Uh, which of these is an example of equality in Australia? A, everyone follows the same religion. B, men and women have equal rights. C, everyone belongs to the same political party. Well done. (laughs) 
If you haven't already guessed, these are some questions from the Australian Citizenship Test. I did it myself and I passed, so I'm very proud of Australia. <laughs> I may have got one or two wrong, but anyway. Um, yeah, thank you. The test ensures that Australian citizens understand the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of being an Australian. So when someone migrates to a new country, sometimes there's a variance or a tension with the culture and the ways of the, the country of origin and the values and the norms of a new country that they're settling into. And we find that um, second generation migrants, the children who have grown up or they've been born in the adopted country, they acclimatise to a new culture and customs much easier than their elders as they adapt to the, the new culture in which they're living. Well, you can see a similar scenario occurring for the people of Israel. They're on the precipice of the land, a land that's been promised to their ancestors. But their forebears have only known the customs and the servitude of Egypt. And they're about to head into a land which is surrounded by neighboring nations of diverse and bewildering customs. How would the Israelites understand their identity as a people redeemed by God and established by him? Well, the Ten Commandments are some of the best known but most misunderstood words in the Bible. If you ask around, most people might be able to recall three or four of them, but there's a lot of confusion about them. What are they for? Do Christians have to keep them? Are they still relevant? If you asked around on the street, most people would probably say that the Ten Commandments are the gist of what Christians believe, that the Bible is full of thou shalt nots, and that Christianity is all about what you can't do. After all, that's what we see in the media. Christians are always the ones who are saying that people shouldn't be doing what they're doing. They're pushing their rules onto other people. Um, in protest, a common response is to, to keep your religion off my rights. But then you hear Christians saying that Christianity is not all about rules, but it's about a relationship with Jesus. So does that mean that they don't matter? Well, the Ten Commandments, or they're also known as the Decalogue, or, which is literally the Ten Words, they were given by God himself to the people of Israel. In 1250 BC, after they've been delivered out of Egypt, and they've, uh, they're a part of a covenant made between God and Israel. So how are we meant to understand these words centuries later? These words that have had so much bearing on our own laws and ethics and ways of thinking. You know, the popularity of the Ten Commandments has even led to non-religious people wanting a list of their own. The Ten Non-Commandments of Atheism. In 2014, there was a group of atheists who crowdsourced for the Ten Non-Commandments for the 21st century. They had a prize of $10,000 and suggestions came all around the world. And what you can see on the screen are the winning answers. I find it fascinating that as atheists, instead of embracing no rules or laws at all, that people go and make up their own rules. It's not as though people think there's no God so I can do whatever I like, it doesn't matter. But actually, people are hardwired to create universal standards about what is and what is not acceptable. And I find that really interesting, and I wonder why. 
Is it a sense of wanting to find connection with other human beings when there isn't an overarching narrative to us all? Is it a desire to prove that atheists are just as moral as religious people? It's as though non-Christians and atheists believe that the, the later part of the Ten Commandments, the, the ones about relationships, are good and true, but they just want to cut off the top bit about God. And so we see a glaring difference in this list of non-commandments because there is an explicit lack of reference to God, except for number five, which says that God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Whereas if we turn to the Ten Commandments, as given in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see that a relationship with God comes first, that this is the very important part which the rest of the commandments hang off. So in Deuteronomy 5 verse 2, we read this preamble before the Ten Commandments even begin, revealing God as a gracious God. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the very beginning before any laws are given. It is the Lord God who takes the initiative to establish a relationship with Israel, not the Israelites themselves. This relationship is founded on the gracious intervention of God in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. And we see that it is intimate and personal and loving. And this is really important. Actually, verse 6 is crucial for our understanding because to take it out of the equation, the Ten Commandments become all about what we need to do rather than what God has already done. It's actually verse 6 that sets the preconditions for all the following laws. The same thing can be seen in the first account of the giving of the law in Exodus chapter, chapters 19 and 20. There God gathers the people at Mount Sinai and he says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this is chapter 19 before chapter 20, and I'm stating the obvious here, but I want to reinforce that chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. You got that? In chapter 19, God sets apart Israel as his treasured possession a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He does this before 
giving them the law. Not after, not as a precondition or a requirement, but before. And in Deuteronomy, we see the exact same thing. His love for his people comes before the law. His rescue comes before his revealing of the law. The law comes after God's gracious rescue. And it's in this law that God reveals his love again and again. These commandments aren't arbitrary laws, but they are an expression of God's character. Part of his reminder to the Israelites about why, for instance, they should rest and keep the Sabbath is, as we see in verse 15, he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So we see that it is God's love that compelled him to rescue them from slavery. And so now he wants them to live as free people. In fact, as we take a closer look at the Ten Commandments, we notice that they reveal a great deal about the character of God. So, for instance, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, the Lord God is the only God. The Lord had conquered the Egyptian gods, and now as Israel embarks on a new country surrounded by foreign gods, it's imperative that they remember that there is only one true God. It is from this command that all the other ones proceed. And so if we think that we can keep all the others and ignore the first command, we're gravely mistaken. The first four commandments center on how to relate to God and the next six center on how to relate to other people. But we can't divorce how we treat people with how we treat God because the two are inextricably linked together. How we treat others reflects how we treat God and vice versa. And whilst the later commandments are about how we should and shouldn't treat others, we continue to learn something about the character of God. So, for instance, we are called to seek life and do not murder because God is the life giver. We seek faithfulness and we do not commit adultery because God is faithful to his covenant people. We seek generosity and we do not steal because God has richly provided for his people. These laws are like guardrails. They're barriers in which God restrains evil in the world. This is why I think that people adopt the Ten Commandments as common virtues or universal ethical laws. And there is some sense to this in the fact that these words reflect the character of God and they're true and good for everyone at all times. It's not just the people of Israel, it's not just Christians more broadly, who shouldn't murder or steal or give false testimony. But there is another aspect to the laws that, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't make sense without a relationship with God, with the Lord God. 
these commandments are for insiders. They're for people who have experienced God's interventionist grace. And so we should not expect that those who are not part of the family of God should nor could keep the lifestyle of those who have an established relationship with the Lord God. I remember when I was at uni and I had a friend who was always apologising to me for swearing and particularly for using the name of Jesus. And although I appreciated his apologies, I kept reminding him that I didn't expect him to live as a Christian when he wasn't one. I didn't expect that he would speak about God in ways that honoured God when he didn't even believe that God existed. As Israel enters the promised land, these laws are meant to be evangelistic. They're meant to set the people of God apart. They're meant to make them distinctive so that others would see the character of God in them. So in this sense, they are not for everybody. They are for those who know the Lord God. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 1, God makes people in his image, in his likeness. And that image has been tainted through the fall and through rejecting God in his word. But as the redeemed people of God, Israel is now to recover that role as image bearers and reflect God to the world. When I was at school and we'd go on a school excursion, the teachers would always say, you're representing your school today, so be on your best behaviour, wear your uniform neatly and make sure you represent the school in the very best light. Whether we liked it or not, people associated who we were with the reputation of the school. Well, in the same way, all the nations around Israel could see something of God in the way that they lived out his laws. They could see his faithfulness, God's truthfulness, his compassion. Particularly, we've got to remember that in a place where the ancient Near Eastern gods of their neighbours were numerous and they were fickle and violent, they didn't care about humans, they just used them, they were immoral, they were temperamental and capricious. In stark contrast, we see a God, the God of Israel, who is God alone. He's not an option among many, but he demands exclusive worship. He's unlike humans, but he cares deeply for them. He's holy and he's loving and he's just. He's completely different to the nation's other gods. So these laws show what sort of God they worship. So if we turn to the law of God, what are we meant to make of these laws themselves? As they're so familiar to us from living in a Judeo-Christian culture, uh, these laws are actually counterintuitive, and I think we forget that. We take for granted that human beings should not steal or should not lie or should not murder, but these ethical commands challenge a self-interested, self-actualization framework where dog eats dog. So I want to make a number of quick points about these laws and how they challenge us. Firstly, they're communal. In our society, we're so focused on our rights. 
our authenticity. You do you. And these laws challenge our expressive individualism. The laws that God gives are communal laws. They're given to shape a community. Many of the laws are around protecting relationships and building community. So, for example, self-sufficiency is challenged in the command to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy. So, if you can imagine, while Israel is meant to be resting, all the surrounding nations are continuing to train soldiers and to harvest and to plant crops and do all these things. And it must take great trust that God is going to provide for them, despite their lack of productivity. They are dependent on God. They're not self-sufficient. And they express that in a community. We'll take the command to not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. Well, we see the achievements and successes and talents of our neighbour and we covet them. That is, we, we wish that they didn't have them, but that we did. We resent others for having what we don't. And instead of celebrating other successes, we feel less than. Our society teaches us to be competitive, to do what it takes to get to the top. But God instead, in these laws, he challenges us to delight in others' achievements, to be content with the many gifts that he's given us, and to stop comparing with each other and treating each other as rivals. I wonder, when you think about the Ten Commandments, do you think of them in an individualistic way? As in, have I kept them or have I not kept them? Laws that are a checkbox tick for individuals. Well, we see here that they're not designed for that at all, but they are a new way of living for a redeemed community. Scholars have often tried to divide up these laws into categories and they try and work out which ones are cultic, which ones are criminal, which ones are civil or ceremonial. But for God's people, it's not as simple as that. All law was God's law. And so to disobey them was to sin against a holy God. So we need to remember that these laws are given at a particular time to a particular people group. Although they show us the shape of a life committed to imaging God, they're not laws for us in the same way as they were for the people of Israel. So that's the first point. Second point, these laws command moral order, moral orthodoxy, as well as justice. So there are commands to honour your father and mother, to not commit adultery, moral categories, as well as laws of social justice concern. You shall not make anyone work on the Sabbath, neither your children or your servants, your animals, any foreigners. When we look at Christianity today, we find that it's often divided up into little tribes where some may uh, be only concerned about one area of how to live and they champion those elements of God. So people say that God is all about family values or God is all about liberation and justice. But what we see here in the Ten Commandments is that justice and moral order cannot be separated. Both 
are the heartbeat of God and belong to the character of God. And as such, we need to stand up for both. Well, thirdly, they reference the past and the future. We've already examined the preamble in verse 6, but it's just worth noting again that many of the commands point back to who they were, that they were slaves in Egypt. But now they also anticipate their new identity, their identity as God's chosen people in the land promised by God and living according to his word. No wonder the psalmist can say this about the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. They are more precious than gold and they are sweeter than honey. So we've seen how radical these laws are, but there's a problem. And the problem is that the law reveals, but it can't rescue. Although the Israelites promise to do all that God has commanded them, a quick flip through the Old Testament will show you that nothing can be further from the truth. And just like the Israelites, when it comes to God's word, we often do not do what we ought to do and we do what we ought not to do. Jesus exposes this truth even further with his Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says. He expands the whole Old Testament laws to include much more than the bare minimum. In Matthew 5, 21, he says, You heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In the same way Jesus says in verse 27, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus drives home the point that the law is not about a narrow definition of what we can get away with, but it is a magnifier for what is already in our hearts. And Jesus famously summarized the laws by saying this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus summarizes the law with love. Love for God and love for neighbor. These laws reveal what love looks like. But they don't rescue they don't magically make our hearts more loving. If anything, they harden it because we can become proud and rebellious. Let me give you an example. One of the commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. You may keep this out of pride, thinking to yourself, 
I take my marriage vows seriously, unlike some other people. You may hold on to this commandment, even though you may not even be cherishing your spouse in reality. Or you may keep it out of fear. If I cheat on my spouse, my reputation is going to be ruined. Another example, suppose you're at work and you become aware that one of your colleagues is using company time and technology to work on their side hustle, their little project. Do you say, well, I would never do that and be proud? Or do you say, well, if they can do it, I can do it too and start wasting time at work scrolling through social media? Do you see how surface obedience, it just disguises and pushes the problem down. The problem is actually much deeper. It's within our hearts. We ourselves notice with frustration when politicians and big businesses limit themselves to whether an action or not is legal or illegal. Branch stacking may, be, may not be illegal, it's certainly unethical. Tax avoidance, paying out huge bonuses to CEOs when workers are laid off. Casinos not monitoring compulsive gamblers. There's numerous examples of behaviour that may be legal but immoral. And we can't just point the finger because we are much better. We limit ourselves to, is it within the boundaries, to justify ourselves rather than thinking, what is the most generous, expansive, God-honouring, neighbour-loving way to live life? Which is how Jesus interprets the laws. Love that is other-centred, God-centred, not self-oriented. Love doesn't do the right thing just when someone's looking. It doesn't do the right thing just when it profits you or when it makes you feel better. But here's the problem. I don't love like that. My obedience is often sporadic and fitful. It's often motivated by sinful desires of control or approval, by fear or by pride. My love for my neighbour is weak and shallow, and my love for God is conditional and wavering. What am I meant to do? It would be easy for me to say, well, nobody's perfect and just do what makes me feel good. Or I could place my confidence in, um, sorry, or I could go through the motions and hope that God won't reject me and live in fear and insecurity. Or I could place my confidence in something or someone who is dependable, much more dependable in Jesus, who is the one who bears the image of God perfectly, who doesn't just love when it's convenient or when others are looking, he loves perfectly. Jesus' disciples lived with him day and night, and they could say, in him there was no deceit. When Jesus asked the Pharisees, who could charge me of any sin? No one came forward. He is the only one who could fulfill the law perfectly. 
who loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and who loved his neighbour as himself. And it's out of this love that Jesus pays the cost himself that all lawbreakers must pay when he dies on the cross in our place. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Charles Spurgeon once said, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion... I beat my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. That's what a heart transformed by Jesus looks like. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us in our place. And now he continues to fulfill the law in us as he fills us with his spirit and enables us to love like he does. So instead of seeing the law as a taskmaster, we are now free to live new lives. The Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt. We have been rescued from an old, empty way of life. We have been made free, and we live in response to that liberation. And now our lives point to the new creation, to a time when we shall live as God's people perfectly. So when we consider God's law as Christians, we can see the beauty in how it reveals the heart of God. We can rejoice that Jesus has fulfilled it on our behalf and that he has removed the consequences of disobedience from our record. And we can live out our identity as God's redeemed, free people, with his spirit transforming us day by day, more and more into the likeness of his son. It is grace from start to finish. It's always God's initiative to bend towards us in love. 